0: to another episode of the Conversation for Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, and I'm the host and creator of the podcast of the Conversation for Our Generation and the blog on uh, conversationforgeneration.com. You can find out more there about what I'm doing. And today we are talking about the bad optics of Trump's recent deal with the Taliban that he was going to work with or work on, rather. And we're going to talk about nation building a little bit and my thoughts on you know, the effects of what we've done in the past and what we're doing in Afghanistan currently. And so before I get too far into any of that, I do want to remind you that you can find me on ConversationFarGeneration.com. You can find other information on the blog. You can find other articles and podcasts that I've done there. And if you are on the website right now, you can also go and subscribe to the podcast uh, at, on iTunes, just search conversation for our generation and it'll pop up for you. You can also go to, uh, facebook.com forward slash, uh, conversation for our generation and find me there as well as at con of our on Twitter. And if you find me on any of those places, feel free to share, give me thoughts, ideas, whatever it is, because I want this to be the conversation, not just, me always giving my thoughts but having a real conversation with other people. And so with that, let's go ahead and hop into the Oh, actually before I hop into the quote of the week, I do want to apologize for last week because I did take the Tuesday off without warning and due to the weekend or due to the holiday weekend and a crazy short week, it just made sense to focus in on the work that I had to do for my actual job outside of this. And, and it was a little tough to get prepared for this with a busy weekend before that as well. The holiday weekend kind of threw me off. So I apologize for not uh, preparing for this properly and having a, an episode for you last week, but we're here this week and we're going to have a good one. So Let's go ahead and hop into the quote of the week, and this one is from uh, Ron Paul, and it is a prophecy, I would say, (laughs) Um, just about, and it's a quote, I just looked it up as well to see, and it was from an article in 2005 that he wrote, and it says, in time it will become clear to everyone that support for the policies of preemptive war and interventionalist nation building will have a much greater significance, sorry, will have much greater significance than the removal of Saddam Hussein himself. And a year later, Saddam Hussein was, uh, or around a year later, Saddam Hussein was killed in 2006 and deposed from power. But we are still, 13 years later, involved in wars that we were involved in because of you know, the same credence, or the same reasons that we were given to go at Saddam Hussein, pretty much, and we're given to go after the Taliban in Afghanistan, and we were, we were there, you know, supposedly nation-building, and really focused on this fight there instead of here mentality for six years or so, if I'm not mistaken, I think we pulled out in, like, 2012 I'm not exactly sure when but it wasn't until the Obama administration and it wasn't immediately so at least a few, another few years we were there focused on the nation building and that was the clear intention from the beginning and was to impose you know democracy on people who really don't want one and that's not to say that Saddam Hussein was a good man or a good leader he was a hor- a horrible person and he did horrific things. The fact of the matter is that a lot of the people who leave Middle Eastern countries are horrible people who do horrific things. And the other thing is that a lot of these people don't want democracy. I mean, many of these Muslim countries are looking to have some sort of Muslim theocracy. And so you can't, force democracy on someone who wants a theocracy. And so, and that's not to say that everyone in Muslim countries are in favor of that, but there are many, many people in power and many people who are very fundamentalist who do want those sorts of things or who do want that form of government rather. And to impose the Western values that we have on a nation that has no history of evolution towards these values was a pointless task from the beginning and so i think that ron paul saw the writing on the wall there and realized that this was not the war to depose an evil dictator and you know get him out of power it was to impose western values and build a nation you know have a, another shining democracy like israel you know that was the supposed plan that if you could have a Muslim country successfully, you know, enact a democracy, then you might get others to follow suit. And personally, I don't think that would be a good thing. I, if you've ever listened to Ben Shapiro's video on what many Muslims across the world believe, I mean, I, I mean there's plenty of, really bad majorities (laughs) that you wouldn't want these things enacted. And I think that a lot of these uh, really evil regimes actually keep in check. Uh, I mean, I think that there is a lot of female genital mutilation, lots of horrible things that happen, but a lot of the places actually prevent that at large scale. Now, do people still do it? Sure. But... I don't think that it is as much condoned by, you know, the Saudis or, you know, some of these leaders, and, you know, the idea of democracy is that it is for people who yearn to be free and who utilize their freedom for good. Monarchies are great for keeping a stable order with a bunch of hooligans, <laughs> and, and that's kind of what you have right now in the Middle East, and that's not to say that everyone there is bad, but I'm... I don't think you would have a good majoritarian rule there, and so Ron Paul saw all of this and really noted a year before we deposed or got fully got rid of uh, Saddam Hussein that this would become about nation building, and it has been for the last thirteen years in Afghanistan. And so today I want to talk about uh, talk about nation building and talk about two of the examples I think that people hold up. And why um one people say worked or would have worked better had we done it sooner, and I disagree. And the other is one that I do think maybe was necessary ish and worked. So the first one, the bad example that we have here is Germany. And I remember learning about reconstruction of Germany after World War Two, and the idea was that then they wouldn't have to rise up again out of anger you would have uh you know they'd be under you know they'd be indebted to us and they would begin to rebuild their economy and they would be ready to enter the world you know as a you know not as a terrible nation that's trying to take over the rest of the world like they had done twice in the last you know 50 years or whatever it was 40 years and so we decided to help rebuild them and i've heard you know many people say that not doing so after world war 1 or doing so after world war 1 would have prevented world war 2 and that in not doing so we helped cause it because we basically saddled them with all the problems that they had and said all right now figure it out and they had rapid inflation and all sorts of bad things going on and so that's why they, uh, that's why World War II came about. And first of all, the people who say that every war is because of bad economic, you know, conditions of the people is just silly because the people don't go to war. They, you know, the people in power do, and they were not necessarily in a bad uh, economic condition, you know? Hitler was not in some destitute condition economically. He was living high on the hog. So the fact that he went to war was not because of that. It was because he was a lunatic who was able to gain power in a country that was actually in a bad position. But I think that what would have helped prevent World War II better would have been to bolster the rest of Europe that was run down because of it. Because the reason why he was able to do this is he inflated the currency to where it was worthless while spending like crazy on only military strength and building up, you know, I mean, really one of the biggest militaries the world has ever seen and using that on a bunch of countries who had pretty much created ceasefires with each other after the first world war, because they were afraid of all of these these chain reactions of alliances coming into play and having another one. And so, and then also at the same time, they were basically kind of walking away from some of these alliances so that they didn't have that happen either. And so basically he had, Hitler had built up an enormous army and was ready to launch attacks. And each one of the wars, I mean, the World War Two did not become World War Two until, like, history started to look upon it more, because really what it was was the invasion of Poland, the invasion of the Czech Republic, the invade, you know, and he invaded several countries, and then all of a sudden, you know, he has brought into the fold, you know, half of Europe, and now it's becoming, you know, now you know, the Soviets are getting involved because he's attacking them on the Eastern front. You know, he has Mussolini in Italy and then Japan starts to attack over, you know, in Asia and take, you know, attack China and, and then America has to get involved. And that's when it becomes a world war is when Europe couldn't, you know, put him out of, you know, put him down because of the fact that They weren't working together. They were fractured. They were, and those were the sorts of things that I think you could have made, uh, made better after world war one was a better solution. And I don't think that the EU became the better solution, you know, that we have now, but I think that NATO or something along those lines maybe could have been a solid solution to prevent Europe from, and having a free trade and, Allowing Germany to participate instead of penalizing them maybe could have been better, you know, because we did cut them off and all that does. And now that we look back on it, I don't think they knew what that would do economically. But when you look back on it economically, you don't hurt the rich and powerful. Like I did, I did a debate on the Cuban embargo and the more and more research. And at the time I was for it because I thought this is a great way to force the hand of evil dictators to succumb to pressures right? And free their people. That's a great and noble idea. And you do it peacefully, right? But what I found was that basically we were just hurting the people of Cuba. And that's what we did to Germany as well with our sanctions. And now sanctions can work sometimes when they're done correctly, for instance, with this uh, the Magnitsky Act, which is an act that freezes oligarchs bank assets yeah, if they're holding, like, basically, if you're holding money in any of these foreign banks to keep it away from your people and hide it, then they can freeze it, and they've started passing these around the world, and so now the oligarchs are losing their money. Yeah, that's an economic sanction that works, you know? If you're guilty, if they're guilty of human rights violations, and you, we can seize your assets. That's basically what it is. That stuff works, you know? Or f- at least freeze their assets that will get people's attention at the top, but in Germany, we didn't do that, and and then after the Second World War, you know, I think that we were just, we did help build them up, and that was probably the best option at the time, maybe, I don't know, but I think that after World War One we had a lot of other options that would have been better, and you can't know that at the time, sure, fine, but We can learn from this now, and we can see the effects. And so, after World War II, we did help build Germany back up. I still think that there's a good chance that we basically still gave the continent to Germany by allowing them to establish the EU and then run the rest of Europe still. (laughs) So, in the end, Germany did win the World Wars. But, (laughs) in reality, but... We definitely could have done more, I think, for the nations that were around them. I mean, Europe is in shambles because of what Germany did. I mean, Greece is in shambles. I mean, so much of Europe is a shell of what it once was. And what I would have liked to see us do in the past is build up the nations. If we're going to nation build, you know, And, you know, go into free trade with these other countries, find ways to make it to where, you know, anyone who wants to deal with America can, and we will make it super easy to do it. And we'll have trade agreements in place. And it had we done that and maybe given a little bit of aid to some of the companies, not companies, the countries to rebuild uh, a little bit after World War One and maybe talk to some of our allies and say, Hey, we'll come there to keep Germany in check. And, you know, I think that would have been a better idea. You know, you could have had a temporary stay for 20 or 30 years where while Germany becomes, you know, not a threat anymore, you can go ahead and do it. And I think if we hadn't sanctioned Germany so hard, then they wouldn't have had to go about. I, I think that the people would not have gone along with what was happening because, the way that Europe treated them after World War One was bad, I think, you know, because they weren't doing that to the Nazi regime. They were doing that to people who were power hungry, for sure, right? I mean, but there was a lot of extenuating circumstances in World War One that wasn't just this big expansion of Germany. And so I do think that Nation building didn't necessarily help us there. And I think that the myth of what we did after World War II is that we, you know, had this glorious, you know, nation building. And because of that, we won the Cold War, you know, and all of this. And I think that the Cold War really plays a lot into why this idea of nation building is so big that, you know, what was happening is you had the East and West Germany and you had communist and democrat German democratic Germany and you know you basically saw that the side that was under the control of the USSR or under the rebuilding of the USSR was a hellhole and the side that was under the rebuilding of the Americans was a thriving western country and so we were able to continue to create this mythology do or based on that that helped us to, you know, that now we're propagandized into this glorious idea when in reality there was a lot of other options on the table. And when we did do that, that was probably the best option that we had probably. And that was probably the only option that we had if we didn't want all of Germany to be under uh, Soviet control. But in the meantime, because of our lack of helping the other countries in Europe, the Soviets were able to take over the entire rest of Eastern Europe basically so while we were sanctioning Germany the USSR was conquering much of Europe and so and strengthening itself and now we had to do this in opposition to them so I don't think it's necessarily the case that it was the best idea the other place though where I do think it may have been more necessary is in Korea now, whether or not you think we should have been in that war in the first place, fine. You you can have that discussion. But I would say that being in Korea is, has been much different than Germany. You know, the since the end of the Korean War, North Korea has been a threat. China has been a threat to that peninsula. And North Korea has been a threat to the southern half of the peninsula. And if we were to... If there were to be some sort of outbreak of violence there, we would have to enter into, and I don't know if we'd have to, and but let's say we would have to enter into some sort of conflict. It is definitely cheaper to have a small number of troops there in peacetime, just reminding Kim Jong Un that, or the Kims basically that, you know, we mean business. Don't mess with us. Part, don't mess with this half of the country or this peninsula, and we won't mess with your half. You know, if you have that presence, that's one thing. Because we really didn't do much, we haven't done as much to build them up and to have this. You know, we've basically created a small trade partner and allowed them to innovate. And so it wasn't as intense of a process as what we had in Germany and the rest of Europe. And also, we didn't really cause this, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is that we really caused the circumstances for world war II to break out again in large part. <clears throat> and cause we, you know, we pissed off the Ottomans, we pissed off Germany. We didn't help Italy. We, uh, Japan was just nuts at the time. And so, <laughs> and so we kind of allowed for all these nutsos with Mussolini. I forget the person in charge of Japan at the moment and uh, and Hitler to come together and to talk about these things. hell Stalin was even in for a while until uh, Hitler turned his guns on him. And so we have these four just nutcase fascist dictators I mean I guess that the leader of Japan wasn't technically the dictator, a dictator he was I think still the emperor. But, regardless, they were, you know, conspiring all this time and we allowed that to happen behind our backs. Not really, because we still kind of knew about it all. And so, in Korea, for on the other hand, you know, basically what happened was there was an outbreak of this communist regime that was starting to take over and they called in for our help or we went in to help to prevent Soviet, uh, the spread of Soviet influence, one of the two. And because of that, we did stop the spread of Soviet influence past, you know, into South Korea. And now you have, I would say probably the starkest contrast and the best case for, you know, free markets over communism that you could possibly ever see two people. I mean, it's like if you have to imagine that's that's like if, you know, Northern and Southern Indiana were communist and capitalist and the stark contrasts, that's, I mean, that's like this. I mean, I don't really, I think Indiana might be bigger than Korea. I don't know. that's probably not, but that's the kind of thing that you have as people who have been the same. I mean, probably for even longer because you have, and you have one people that's, you know, inches taller on average and weighs normal weight versus is malnourished and all of these things because of their economic system that they live under. And so if it takes having a small presence there to prevent the cost of an actual full-on conflict, then, you know, there's an argument to be had there in favor of not nation building necessarily, but for having a presence abroad. And sure, would my ideal situation be that all of America's troops are within our borders unless really called to, you know, do something abroad to protect us here? Sure. Because I don't think that the idea of taking the fight over there always is the ne- necessary thing. But if you're going to have p- troops stationed around the world, having them at a place where we probably, I mean, where, yeah, we probably put in the infrastructure, the military infrastructure in order to fight the war and keeping them on that military infrastructure is not necessarily the worst thing that we could do. And is probably, I would say one of the more cost efficient things that we could do because Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, they're crazy and they want to take over South Korea and they've wanted to take over South Korea for 50, 60 years, whatever it is now. And so if you can prevent that with small presence, maybe that's better. I don't know. I'm not super excellently versed in this, so I can't tell you for sure, but I can say that you can make a better argument in favor of the presence in Korea than you can in Germany, and even though Germany definitely is the biggest cause of conflict in the last like 200 years, they are currently running Europe through the EU, so I don't think they're going to be causing too much conflict anytime soon. The last com- country that I wanted to talk about is Afghanistan, which I know, which I know that's where we started. So the reason why I'm bringing it back around here now is because I wanted to talk about the history of it a little bit and see kind of two different approaches that we've had in the past. And, and then also talk about why Afghanistan is so, un- not so unique, why Afghanistan is unique in this picture. And the fact of the matter is in Afghanistan, we've been fighting a war for 18 years and I don't know if you know this but you know the 18th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up in a day and the fact of the matter is that soon if not already I mean soon for sure we're gonna have people serving in this war that weren't alive when 9-11 happened if you have to be 18 to serve So on September 12th, I am sure there will be men, young men enlisting who weren't alive when September 11th happened. And for the last couple years, we've had people who could not even possibly remember, you know, that day fighting still, dying still. And we've prolonged this war. Through soft military tactics and trying to do the politically nice thing constantly instead of fighting a war that we're supposedly fighting. And because of this, we've not only lent further credence to the idea that Afghanistan is unconquerable, we've allowed more people to die than we should have. We've allowed more time to go on and more people to be separated from their families than we should have because we couldn't be decisive about what we want to do. If you're going to invade a place, then you have to fight a war. You can't hold back. You can't do any of these silly tricks and schemes that we do. You have to really fight. I mean, if you look at what, I mean, and it's not like you're storming the beaches of Normandy here in Afghanistan, it's, it's really, I mean, an isolated, small country with, you know, and it's not a small country, I shouldn't say, but it's not a hugely populated country, and, I mean, most of the people that we're fighting aren't even the population, it's not even an actual military, it's the, it's these terrorists, and it seems to me that We've gotten ourselves into a pickle here where we can no longer hand over the country back to the Taliban. And we can also not just keep fighting this war and losing American lives because of it. And the Taliban are horrible. I mean, the Taliban and how they run the country when they are in charge is disgusting and horrible. And that shouldn't be allowed. But the fact of the matter is, are we the ones who shouldn't allow it? And, or the question, I guess I should say is, are we the ones who shouldn't allow it? And I don't think that we are the ones to execute that judgment. I think that you have to have the people there do something about it. I mean, I think that I would be much more in favor of America going and using military possibly to protect missionaries going over there to set up schools and educate Afghanis. Fine. I would be okay with that. If you're going over there to really talk to them about these things instead of just, you know, fighting a war that doesn't need to be fought anymore because the people are in hiding and every time they come out. And every time we leave, they come out of hiding. And then every time we go back, they go back into hiding and we're the third, you know, major power to fail, to really make progress in Afghanistan. And so after, you know, three major powers haven't done it after what we've done in Germany and failed there and, you know, had a moderate success in Korea, had a failure in Vietnam, had failures all throughout the Middle East, (laughs) what makes us think that Afghanistan is going to be different for us? What makes us think that this isn't a waste of our time, money, and most importantly, American lives? And so, I think that, you know, we have to find a way to leave, and despite the, uh, bad optics of what Trump was doing, bringing the Taliban to, you know, go vacation with him on the week of (laughs) 9-11, which is just horrible optics, which is probably why it was secret until he let the cat out of the bag. (laughs) Despite that, I do like the idea that he has of getting out of there. And if he could find a way to do it, And if you could find a way to, you know, minimize the Taliban's influence in the process, I would think that's good. I would think that is a good thing. And if there's a way to educate people there and allow them to see, you know, offer that from the American perspective, I think you could actually win hearts and minds there if we weren't. Doing what we're doing because you make it easy to continue this cycle for the Taliban by, you know, accidentally, you know, you kill someone who is a jihadi and it just proves their point even more. Right. But if we step away and say, hey, fine, it's your country. People would realize that we weren't the problem. I mean, we are somewhat the problem, but the problem is the fact that these people have an evil mentality and we were coming to try to rescue them from them as poorly as that, you know, was executed and everything that's different, but we were there to try to help them. And these people, the Taliban were there to continually oppress them. And we were there as their liberators. And I think people would realize that in very short time. And I think some people do realize that, but I think that Way too many people now don't see that. And it's not because of, you know, their stupidity or anything like that. That's not why. It's because we lend credence to the narrative that the Taliban offers continually by being there. By the fact that, just like we have people who don't remember 9-11 fighting. I mean, there's people who are fighting for the Taliban... Who were not born when 9-11 happened either. There's people who don't remember that happening. And now all of a sudden. this For their entire life. These, these foreigners have been in their country. Killing their uncles. And you know. Their cousins and so on. And now they're radicalized too. Because of the narrative that they're being offered. Their answer that they're given. From these people. Who were attacking. And so if you look at it that way, I mean, just picture, you know, my brother's 16-ish, somewhere in there, you know, picture a high schooler that you know, and what they would be like if a foreign invader had come and killed their dad, their uncle, and three of their cousins. What would that person do? You know, how would they react? I know that if, (laughs) I would like to think at least, that if I were alive during the revolution, and, you know, something like The Patriot (laughs) happened, where, you know, Mel Gibson loses his son and goes and fights, um, if you have something like that happen to you, that you would get involved, that you would say, this is the time now where I stop talking and start doing, because these foreign invaders are, you know, attacking my family, you would do that, I would think most sensible people would, especially when the narrative is what it is, and you're not well educated on what the world is like, because... You live out in a place where they've deprived you of that for and deprived everyone there of that for decades. So, I think that truth wins out more than force. And my hope is that in Afghanistan, we can allow the truth to come through by getting out of the way and showing the lies and the falsehoods that the Taliban are trying to sell. And so, that's my hope for what we can what's coming up there and hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the conversation of our generation and if you did please like share let people know about it send it around i mean you can if you're listening on itunes copy the link and send it out to people uh but please definitely let people know about this podcast and the more you talk about it the more it spreads if you go to if you do listen on itunes definitely give it the five star rating and uh and a good review that stuff really helps as well and you can also go to facebook.com slash conversation our generation or twitter at god of our gen to continue the conversation there thank you so much for listening to the conversation of our generation and i'll talk to you next week